We'll be looking at uh, or going through a series of sermons, uh, four sermons on Christ being fully human for us. This is the first of those four sermons based on Matthew chapter one. We'll be looking at one verse today, just the first verse. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we hear these words and we confess it's hard for us from this standpoint to hear them as any more than historical notes, neither very weighty nor very worthwhile for a morning devotion, let alone a whole sermon. And yet, when we've taken a closer look at them and a closer look at every word of your breathed out words in the 66 books of your inerrant one book, the Bible, We see so great a salvation you've providentially worked for us in the redemption Jesus bought for us. Therefore, by the Holy Spirit, work in us the joyful appreciation and worship of you for your great salvation in the person and work of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Now, when we talk about the genesis of Jesus, I have to start out by saying and qualifying that God the Son did not have a genesis. He has no beginning or or end. God the Son, who Jesus is, in his divine nature, he is eternal. He is co-equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal in power and glory. But God the Son becoming man for us does have a genesis. Its plans go back to that eternal part, but there is a time and a place that Jesus comes. In fact, we, when we went through Galatians, we talked about that. In the fullness of time, Paul says there, he came born of a woman, born under the law for those who were under the law. Now, there's this old saw about preaching, and I know I'm coming, seems like it's coming out of nowhere, but I want to bring it together here. The old saw about preaching is that you tell them what you're going to say, you tell them what, what you're saying, and then you tell them what you said. And most of the time, I think I'm doing that here. But it's a pattern that we get from God. Now, some people don't like to hear those same things over and over again. But you know that repetition is the key to education and it's discovered as the key of of education because the one who made us made us to hear these things again and again because in this fallen world, we forget these things. You see, God, he doesn't just say things. He does show and tell, or maybe better put tell, show. And that's sort of what the scripture is, is tell, show, tell, show, tell, show, tell, show. And all the implications of the one message of God grows in richness and application. So while it is the same message, 
It branches out into every crevice and every area of our lives. The one message is this, that God has a great reclamation project. That he is not going to lose his people. Fallen and broken as they are. But there are varying patterns in God's word of how that message gets across. No less so than in the birth of our Lord Jesus. So the main idea of this passage is that the seed of the woman, it's the seed, not that, but it is the seed of the woman whose rule blesses all the families of the earth. Now, how do we know Jesus is truly our savior? That's the big question of this passage answered in this central point, that history is his story of salvation, that God carefully documents. And what is he documenting? The genesis of Jesus right here. Looking at first Jesus' earthly origin, Jesus' royal origin, and then finally Jesus' saving origin. First, Jesus' earthly origin. And what this is about Just get this at the beginning. He alone, he alone represents us fully so you can rest assured that he saves you. Rest assured. He saves you. Are you looking to him? And what we see in this passage, in the very first part, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ is the divine origin of this plan. It's captured well with Paul in Ephesians 1 there on your sheets. Ephesians 1, 11 first we'll go through. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does he work out? All things. How does he work it out? Does he come to you and get suggestions? Did he come to you and ask you when you wanted to be born? What time period? No. He's self-referential. It's the counsel of his will that he works all things together. But why is he doing it? To what end? Why is he? What for? We find that in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You see, that's the pinnacle of God's glory. God is, the, is his chief end is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. But he gets the most joy out of reclaiming us in that gift. It puts on display, it puts on display the glory of every one of his attributes. You say, well, how did his justice and his wrath come into that. Well, Jesus died as your substitute. He fully represents you. God put on Jesus our sin and then he gave Jesus what we deserve. His love is also shown in that very same act because we could never atone for our sins. Only Jesus could do that for us. And so he gives us the gift of salvation. You see, we are made for historical impact. 
Verse 12 of Ephesians 1 tells us that. So God is utterly concerned about history. You see, we can't ever get away with saying, as C.S. Lewis very clearly points out in mere Christianity, don't give, don't give us that old saying, oh, um, I don't believe all that stuff about Jesus being God, but yes, for his great moral teachings. Yes, Christianity is concerned about moral teachings and principles. But it isn't like Buddhism that is just a set of principles that it doesn't matter, you know, what history, what happened in history, you just apply the principles and go. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is grounded in history because it's about God's glory being put on display on a stage in the gift that he actually wants you to give your consent to. He's asking you to turn in faith to him. God is meticulously focusing on every detail to gather a people for himself, every detail, including your individual history. So that's the divine origin in, in the eternal plan of God. And the human origin is this grounding right from the start in human history. You know, it says, this is the book of the, uh, uh, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Early on, the story of creation and fall and what God promised in redemption was passed on and Moses makes lots of references to this. You might recall from our preaching through Genesis, like there in Genesis 5.1. It's very similar to what Matthew says here. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. What that is pointing to is possibly a stone or a tablet of some kind that recorded genealogies. And around those genealogies were stories that were passed on, but not just stories, not legends, but true history, because those people lived a long time, if you recall. Methuselah, 969 years. That's a long time to get those stories straight and lots of people to check other people. And in that, God's still working in his hand of providence. Because God, can, you know, people say, well, how could you believe? This is written by sinners, right? And, you know, they make mistakes. And scholars have said that there's a contradiction here and a contradiction there. Don't you think God... Eternal God can make sure that sinners will still get a story straight. You think that's hard for him? It's not hard for him at all. So there is a grounding in history that we've seen right from the start in Genesis. And even in the Genesis of Jesus here, the gospel is within that grounding because that is the heart of God's plan. The seed, God's announcement of his intention to continue even in, after the fall to keep a people for himself. He talks about the two seeds. And by the way, we're both, we're, we are uh, born seed of the serpent. Every single one of us, except for Jesus, every single human being that's ever lived is born seed of the serpent, born under the curse. 
That's why Paul said in Galatians 3.13 that Jesus became a curse for us. For us. So here it, here it is. The blessing and the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus crushed Satan's head right at the time Satan thought he was getting the victory because remember, all throughout biblical history, he's trying to kill the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. In Exodus, what happens? Pharaoh has all those Hebrew boys thrown into the Nile. Around the birth of Jesus, Herod has all those male children, two years old and under, thrown into the river and drowned. Satan's been trying to kill the seed. Finally, he does. An irony of irony, his killing of the seed of the woman actually is the, the outbreak of God's full effect of gathering his people in the death of Jesus on the cross. And we see throughout history that there was this longing to find the seed. Who is it gonna be? And we see in Lamech, Noah's father, look at uh, Genesis 5, 29. He names him Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord is cursed, this one shall bring us relief from the work, from our work and from the painful toil of our, hand, of our hands. And what we see in Lamech's lament and cry out to God, naming his son Noah, which means rest. That's what he's crying out for. It's a very human search. Very human search for the one who would turn this whole thing around. A nagging sense of the curse is in Noah's, I mean, in, in Lamech's naming of his son. He's asking, is this as good as it gets? It's a very human search because it's a very logical search. It's reverse engineering. We know that the ground was cursed when Adam sinned. And now he's going from the effect a uh, painful toil of our hands, can someone straighten this out? So what Matthew is saying here is this is God's documentation. You've heard it over and over and over again in all the word that's come before this. Now, why is God giving us documentation? Because we have to know that Jesus alone fully represents us. So you can rest assured that he saves you. I mean, why else would he have it written down like this? So that 2,000 plus years later, we're still talking about this. Still reading it. He says you have legal record and claim right here. Because this is you in this genealogy. If you belong to Jesus, you're united to him by faith. So whatever he goes through, you go through. The kind of people he represents here, that's you. So you have an advocate, a lawyer, to argue your case in God's court. And it was all God the Father's idea, because he wanted you. But he's not just a great lawyer, he's also a king. The seed of the woman whose rule blesses all the families of the earth. How do we know Jesus is truly our savior? 
because history is his story of salvation in which God carefully documents Jesus' genesis first in his earthly origin. Here he is, he's arrived, but who is he? What gives him the qualification? So we have to look at Jesus' royal origin. He alone qualifies as our king, so rest assured he's watchful over you. The divine promise of Jesus the King and Messiah is shown in Westminster Shorter Catechism 26. This was one of my favorite catechism questions when I had to memorize it to graduate from seminary. This is the one that makes me want to stand on a chair, on a chair and cheer for Jesus. Look at this. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Jesus had to be a king. Remember when David wanted to build a temple for God so God could live in an ark, you know, he's living in a tent, but I live in this palace. You know what God says to David? You're not going to build me in that temple. Your son is. But guess what? I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build a house for you. And what does that house consist of? Well, look at 2 Samuel 7, 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Why? Because that throne was not the earthly throne of David. It was based on the heavenly throne of our Lord Jesus. He was descended from David. And we have that divine promise that God is going to build a house for David. And we have the human lineage. Romans 1, 3, and 4. It's kind of in the middle of a conversation, but you'll catch it. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. David was promised a lineage that would last forever. It was already there in Christ. But this ups the ante because Jesus isn't just merely human for us. He had to be of the Davidic line. He couldn't just be any old guy born anywhere. He had to be born right in this line because of God's promise to David to prove Hey, God, God is saying, hey, I'm going after a people and I will gather them and they will be mine and they will follow after me. But it more than ups the ante because the Davidic royal line was no more at this point. Joseph, Jesus' earthly representative father, was the last in the line of David at this point. What is he? He's not a king. He's a carpenter. And so he was descended from this line of David, but he was declared, look at Romans 1, 4. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that he became God's son when he was resurrected. What God is saying here is I am giving my stamp of approval that he, as God the Son, always accomplished the mission of God the Son. 
that began in eternity, that he chose you and sent his son to take on your sin as a king, the king of heaven, to take on your sin, to be punished for your sin. And guess what? You don't have to do anything but say, I want that. And when you do, guess what? You walk into no curse at all, blessing, fellowship with God. He, God was saying, look, he is God the Son. He has accomplished the mission of God the Son, given to him from all eternity. And he therefore has a vested interest in getting you home safely. Isaiah 53, 11. We usually quote Isaiah 53 around Easter time because it's a prediction of the suffering servant. But what was that all about? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What is he gonna see and be satisfied about? By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, this is what he's gonna see and be satisfied about, make many to be righteous? No, to be accounted righteous. Why? Because they're not righteous, you and me. All the people in history that have clung to Jesus, not righteous on their own, accounted righteous. Why? Because of his righteousness. Why? Because as it says at the end of verse 11, Isaiah 53, and he shall bear their iniquities, which is another word for sins. So as a king, he has the power and the vested interest to accomplish everything we need to be saved. And make sure that you will get all the way there by conquering all his foes and ours. Therefore, he alone qualifies as our king and you can rest assured that he will be watchful over you through the whole time and everything you go through. Because this is about the seed of the woman whose rule blesses all the families of the earth. How do we know Jesus is truly our savior? History is his story of salvation. That's what history is all about. That's why we're the most essential institution, regardless of any proclamation of any government, including our own, we are the most essential institution in the world today. And we better start living like we are. The reason why I say that, I say that to me. You know why we fall off on this? We fall on, on this because we always, we have a tendency, including me, I'm not, look, there's three fingers right here, but I say it because I have to, because we don't see all this stuff. We believe it on faith, and therefore we have a tendency to minimize what we don't see and put on a lower priority what we don't see. This gathering right here should be our highest priority. It should be the highlight of our week. Because the unseen things that are eternal in nature, eternal and unseen. This is the place where we're reminded of it. When we look at one another and we see the value of each human life here. And we see the love of God for each human life here. Why wouldn't we want to be together? So we have Jesus' earthly origin. He represents us fully. His royal origin, he alone qualifies as our king. 
And in both of those, you can rest assured he saves you and he'll be watchful over you to get you all the way home. And finally, we got Jesus saving origin. He alone binds himself to us. He did that. We didn't choose to bind ourselves to him, not until he did that for us. We love because he first loved us. So rest assured, he will always be with you, always. And he will always be for you. The divine purpose in this cup, what we're basically talking about here is covenant. The divine purpose is that God would have a people who cannot represent themselves, who will come in through a representative person. God then continually promises, look, this isn't just pie in the sky by and by. He promises his offspring land. It's got to take place here on the earth. And the church is scattered all over the world right now because of God's sovereign work. And one day, as Jesus says, the meek, the ones who humble themselves before God and repent and trust him in faith, guess what they're going to get? The whole earth. Like my friend, we used to walk around um, a small town there up near Tupelo and he'd say, Andy, look around. One day, we're going to own all of this. We're going to own all of this because the meek will inherit the earth. And so that's why God is not only offering salvation, he is offering salvation on a stage, the land. And it's both physical and spiritual. Notice in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, in God's call of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's why we're here, folks. The mission ain't done yet. That's why we're still here. We're to be a blessing to the world like our father Abraham. Verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, how personal is this? Well, you notice throughout the Old Testament, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why all three? Because God was saying, this is the lineage that you need to be a part of. And I see you as personally as I see these three. I can't name the millions and billions of people throughout history that I have chosen and have come to me in faith. But I'm going to guarantee you this. Look at this ceremony. When Abraham had gone to sleep, and we've already walked through this in Genesis When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces of the animals that Abraham divided. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, what? I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. What was God saying there? God was saying as he alone passed through, he protected Abraham from passing through those animals. And he brought the curse on himself. He was saying, Abraham, if I fail, what happened to these animals happened to me. God ain't going to fail. But he then added by doing that, Abraham, if you fail, stay over there. Don't walk. Stay sleeping over there to see this vision. Abraham, if you fail, may what happened to these animals happen to me as well. 
And we see this fulfilled. Jesus is the true son of Abraham because that's what he did. It's a substitution. That's what sacrifice is all about. He represents us. Jesus represents us. He succeeds where all the other covenant representatives failed. And boy, did they ever. We've seen with Abraham already. You know about David and Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. He would be hard to stomach as a leader today, wouldn't he? And yet God's saying, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover David too. If he can cover David, he can cover you and me. Because it's based on a previous bond that he had with us long before all this history happened. When he, when he saw that history that he created, it says Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has what? Blessed us, not cursed, but blessed us in Christ. He cursed Christ, but he blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before it all began, before the foundation of the world. And that's why we can believe and rest assured that the words he says, he shows it to be true in all that Jesus is and does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The seed of the woman whose rule blesses all the families of the earth. How do we know Jesus is truly our savior? History is his story of salvation in which God carefully documents Jesus' genesis and his earthly origin. He represents you fully, so he rests assured he saves you. He's got the authority to do it as a king, so he rests assured he's watchful over you. And he's finally representative of this covenant that God had that starts in this eternal bond that he has with us that was his idea, not ours. And so rest assured, he will always be with you and for you. See, the great aim of all of this is that God makes sure that we see salvation, assurance, rest in Jesus, not in us. So in conclusion... For God so loved the world, that's what he says. He declares it, right? Well, show me that he gave his only son. So what are you gonna do with what God says and does? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this is the earthly genesis of Jesus. He comes to us born of the Virgin Mary to identify with sinners and pay for their sins once and for all as the king to be that ultimate seed of the woman that Israel was looking for. We sang, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It's a perfect transition from Thanksgiving to, to Christmas. Longing in that dry and desert land, that seed that would destroy once and for all the works of the evil one, the devil. And all that is left right now because you have breath right now is to believe and rest in him and not work for your salvation because you can't. If you think you can, you are prideful, arrogant, and the most boastful person in the worst kind of way possible. It doesn't seem that way because we don't see God. We don't see all these plans and we, didn't, we weren't there to witness that history. We just had the written account. But from that slight turning away, from Jesus' work, you could actually end up slamming the door on salvation and end up in hell forever. 
Not because God is mean or vindictive, but because he's just. And he alone has the standard of justice. So have you clamored for your soul's rest in him for now and forevermore? Because he offers it to you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you save any of us? Would you have saved any of us if you hadn't already set your heart on us, your eternal love for us? Would you bring our hearts to the personal assurance that we are saved and there is nothing more to worry about because Jesus did it all? He came to us to set us free, to bring us joy and our salvation in him, all because he tasted our sadness in order to bring us gladness. He came as a child and rose from the dead as King of kings and Lord of lords to raise us from the deadness of our sins. May we rest assured that he is good for the work he did on our behalf to save us in his birth, death, burial, and resurrection. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen.